On this beautiful day, O Lord, in this beautiful sanctuary, we are here. Please, Father, hear us, understand us, speak to us, help us, redeem us, and change us according to your will. For we pray it in the name of him who taught us how to pray, to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The Gospel according to Matthew, the fifth chapter, beginning to read at the 43rd verse. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you salute only your brethren, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. When Jesus was here in the flesh, he taught his disciples not only through example, but through precept, through parable, and by putting to them specific questions. That's the way he taught. And during Lent of 1976, it is our intention to look at some of those questions which Jesus asked, hoping that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, who is with us, here every Sunday and dwells within those of us who claim ourselves to be Christian, that Jesus will ask these questions to us again, and helping us as we look and listen to these questions to find out not only who we are, but what our purpose in life is to be. Today we look at the first question, what more are you doing than others? What more, that's one of the key words, are you doing, that's the other key word, than others? You see, it is the contention of our Lord that we who bear the name Christian, we who are a part of his body, the Church, we are to be doing, not just talking, not even just praying, that we are to be doing not less but more than other people, namely those who are not a part of God's army in Jesus Christ and who claim no affiliation 
through his anatomy, the body of Christ the church. What more are you doing than others? I think there are at least four things in Scripture, the Gospels, that tell us that we as disciples of the Christ should be doing more than other people. One, we should be loving more than other people. We should be the more lovable people on the face of the earth. This means loving not only in quality but in quantity as well. Not only in depth but have an understanding in love which is wider than, than anybody else. Our Lord said this, Other people will know you are my disciples if and he didn't say if you go to church, if you belong to a particular denomination. He said, if you love one another. You see, that was the thing that stumped those first century pagans. <laughs> they couldn't understand our predecessors. They, they said it, my, these Christians, how they love each other. We are to love one another. We're to love not only our fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, the Christians sitting beside you, but we are to love also strangers, people that we have never seen or probably never will. That's the kind of love we are supposed to have, and though maybe other people aren't expected to love strangers, we are. One of the great things being associated with this great church that God has blessed for 103 years and seems to have even greater blessings in store for us in the years yet to come, is being a part of a concerned community that is large, but wonderful, and which does love. One of the things that is before your session presently is a goal, and it's been there for many, many years, is the desire not just to talk good and look good, but to do good and to show love by trying to give as much money away in the name of God's love as we keep here. We still have a long ways to go. This year we're going, God willing, to give thanks to your support and generosity approximately $61,000 away through programs and to people in the name of God's love. Now that's a lot of money. But for those of you who might have joined the church since we have said it before and we've been saying it for years, that's not enough. And we are hoping in the leadership of this church to find someday when we give away as much as we keep here. That's a tremendous goal, but it's before your session and you people have supported it in years past. And I know that you're going to continue. But that, you see, is just one expression of loving strangers more than do other people. We're to love ourselves, we're to love one another, we're to love strangers, and this is the tough part. According to the command of Jesus, we're to do more than other people by loving our enemies. And that's tough. That's difficult, yet that is what we are to do more than other people, loving our enemies. You notice the scripture nowhere states that we should not have enemies. Now, we all have them. Jesus really infers that if we don't have enemies, <laughs> we're really not doing our job. 
And it says nowhere that enemies are things to be gotten away from. Instead, it says that we are to love our enemies, as did Jesus. And remember Jesus from the cross, <laughs> the people who put him up there. He said unto them, Father, forgive them, where they don't know what they do. We're to pray for those who are trying to persecute us. And as the old King James Version says, we're to bless those who curse us. Now that's very difficult. And when Jesus uses it here in our text for today's sermon, he uses the Greek, or the word which the Greek translates agape, which is a unique type of love. Agape, you see, is that kind of love that is translated from the Greek to mean unconquerable goodness. Unconquerable goodness. Invictive benevolence. That which cannot be overcome. Agape is that kind of love which says that no matter what someone else does to me, no matter the heart, the hurt, the suffering, the injustice he does, at no time or at any way will I allow bitterness to come into my life, but I shall be interested only in his best at all times. Now that's a difficult assignment. Agape love, you see, though, is a little different type of love than what we know for father and mother and husband and wife and son and child. Agape love does not come out of the area of the feelings. It is not that love that comes uninvitedly or unexpectedly, love which we cannot help but fall into. Agape love comes not from the area of the feelings, but from the area of the will. It comes not without your control, but controlled only by you. It comes even though you may not like the person, only when you determine in your mind that you are going to love those who are your enemies. That kind of love can come only as a gift from God in Jesus Christ. There's no other way you can have it. And one of the biggest difficulties which brings frustration to Christians is that they try to have this love for enemies, which is very difficult to find, without finding it in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ can't give it to any of us unless we ask him for it. Yes. The kind of love that we have where we can bless those who curse us, pray for those who persecute us, is not yours by nature. It can come only for as a gift and a grace from Jesus Christ, and it will come from him only, only, only when individually we ask for it. We're to love more than other people, and you show that when you love your enemies. Not only that, but we are to say no more than other people. We are to say no more than other people say no. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, and he means woman there as well. He must or she must deny self, which is the Greek way of saying you say no to yourself. 
Now, a lot of people I know are saying no to some desire or wish because this is Lent. They give up chocolate cake, or they give up some luxury or some particular thing they want to do because they say it is Lent, and really because they want to lose five pounds. They try to think they're doing a very religious thing by giving something up. I've given up chopped liver and onions. I like neither one, but I wouldn't want to think that that is a religious devotion. And I hope no Protestant Presbyterian present here thinks that he's really doing something for the glory of God by saying no to a particular wish or desire. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he says you are to deny yourself. It's not just denying chocolate cake or something for a day or for six weeks. No, no. He's talking about denying self, not just a particular desire or wish. Denying self, that means dethroning the ego and enthroning God forever. It means once and forever obliterating self and really get involved and sincerely interested in what God wants you to do and what other people would like you to do. It means getting rid of selfishness and self-centeredness, and if I have to make it more explicit, it means when you walk into a room not wondering how many people are looking at you, but rather you trying to look to help someone else. It means doing something for somebody else, not expecting other people to do something for you. It means not just during the period of Lent, but from this time forth, you say no when you want to be the big deal, when you want your way all the time, when you want other people to honor and worship you. Well, we're living in a very difficult time. It's not all our fault. But just through the evolution of time, we find ourselves in this period of time when you know we're living in a permissive generation where even young people, little children, think that no one has a right to say no to them. We're living in a time when we talk about rights, not responsibilities. We're at a time when it's popular to do your own thing. When we no longer talk about absolutes, but when we try to compromise and call it situation ethics. We're in a time where we are so conditioned, even inside the church with this, that we forget that it is the right, the privilege, the necessary requirement for people to be able to say no to themselves. When was the last time you said no to anybody, let alone yourself? We want to be liked. We want everybody to have everything. And because we don't say no, so many people do not have. Not just the politicians that we read about every day in our newspapers, but there are many people in America today who realize the world would have been much better off and they too in a moment of temptation they'd have been able to say no to themselves See, the, to me that's the whole point of Jesus going into the garden or into the 
desert for 40 days. He was tempted, you know, to serve self, to turn stones into bread, to do something spectacular so that everybody would look at him, to call down the angels from heaven. And our Lord said, no. And that's what he expects you and me to do, ladies and gentlemen, as Christians. To say no more than other people say no. To deny ourselves. And he expects us to say yes to the crosses that we find in front of us. If you didn't be my disciple, you don't only say no to self. But you take up your cross. You take up your cross. And I'm surprised the number of people who find it so difficult to interpret this word cross. Many of you women, and I notice now men are doing it too. You, you, you have in your jewel box, or maybe even about your neck today on a beautiful chain, some ornamental miniature cross. And you love it. And it means much to you. Believe me, though, if you had lived 2,000 years ago, you would not be wearing a cross around your neck. For 2,000 years ago, when Jesus lived, that cross had with it the connotation not only of suffering and sorrow, but above all, shame. Shame, yes. The cross, you see, was the instrument that was used to kill criminals. Yeah, it, its counterpart today is the electric chair. And I haven't seen too many men nor women carrying miniature electric chairs around their necks in the form of a replica of honor. No. That's the symbol of shame, of suffering. That's the way criminals die. Jesus says we're to take up a cross. Take up a cross. You see, a cross, as many people try to make out, is not a tragedy or a calamity. I've heard people say, who maybe have given birth to an exceptional child, that that's their cross to bear. That may be a tragedy, but that, that's not a cross. I've heard people who who feel that they are imprisoned because they have to take care of an elderly father or a mother, that that's just their cross to bear. That's not a cross, that's a responsibility. I've heard people say that because of some handicap, because of some trouble, because of, of some great difficulty, they have a cross to bear, and that's theirs till they go to the grave. That may be a tragedy, but that's not a cross. A cross in the connotation of which Jesus speaks is not something that is thrown upon you and cast down on you. It is not something you are compelled to do. It is something that is before you in the form of a project, a task, a responsibility. And you don't have to pick it up. You can find maybe not reasons, but at least excuses for not picking up that cross. That's the kind of cross that Jesus is talking about. It is something out there that you can say no to but because you are a Christian and you are expected to do more than other people, you take it up. You take it up. And it may mean sacrifice. That's right. It may mean you have to give up some of your things. That's right. It may mean it's going to cost you money. That's right. It means you're going to get your hands dirty. That's right. 
It means you're going to have to suffer on the cross. That's right. And that's what it means. To take up your cross. And when you see that responsibility before you, you don't find someone else to volunteer. You volunteer yourself. And ladies and gentlemen, there's not one of us in the sound of my voice here today who has not had some cross placed at our feet. Are you going to pick it up? That's what we're to do, you know, more than other people. And we're to try more than others to be perfect. <laughs> That's what Jesus said. I didn't say it. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven. Yes. That is our task, that we are to do more than other people to be perfect. And you notice, ladies and gentlemen, in the areas of morality, of good righteousness, of doing what is right. Today we've given up in trying to be perfect. We say when we make a mistake, nobody's perfect. Everybody goofs. And we really, I think, are at a time in history when we are not even trying to be perfect because we think it's impossible. It's strange, you know, we don't do that in the area of the physical. This beautiful body that is before you, it's not perfect. No, just getting over a sickness. But you know, I treat it and try to make it perfect. Try to get the right number of hours of rest. Try to eat the right type of food. I uh, try to exercise it. I take vitamins every day. But that body is not perfect. It's been sick, it'll be sick again. But you see, I try to the best of my ability to have a perfect body, as do you. Our minds, you know, they are incapable of being ignorant. Do you realize that? Yes. But we in our respective fields, we work hard to become expert and perfect. We'll never attain all the knowledge in whatever field we are in. But that doesn't stop us. We continue to work to try to become perfect. Should we not also in the area of morality? and in the strength of righteousness, try to be perfect? We have been made in the image of God. That means we have some of the characteristics of God. We are to be righteous, we are to be pure, we are to be holy. And we are to let our love and our strength shine not only upon the good, but upon the evil. We are to allow our love to reign not only upon the just, but on the unjust. But we're living in an age today when we are content with mediocrity, especially in the areas of morality. We say nobody's perfect. We are supposed to be more perfect than others. That's not my decision, that's Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my firm conviction and belief, and I know some of you do not agree with it, but nevertheless, I believe it. Could be wrong, but the trouble with America, the trouble with the church, the trouble with our land is not because of some satanic force, some devil who is sending his 
ambassadors down here to infiltrate, nor do I believe that there's a communistic conspiracy to try to destroy us. The reason we're having trouble today is because of Christians who have forgotten or given up in trying to do more than other people. We have been created by God. We've been redeemed by Jesus Christ. We've been given the power of the Holy Spirit to move this world. And instead of being changing this world, we're being conformed to it. Instead of doing more, we're doing less than other people. And there are some organizations who are not Christian who are doing more for the sake of the kingdom than we. If we ever expect to hear as we sang the last closing words of that hymn, those words, well done, well done. We better go to work. Because Jesus is still asking that question. What more are you doing than others? Help us, Lord. Amen. Father, may we realize that the church is to be a practical, powerful, plenteous thing in the world, and it can be so only as we find ourselves doing what you would want us to do. Help us, Father, and now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of his Holy Spirit be in abide with you all now and forevermore. Amen.